Um, <clears throat> good afternoon. Um, the winner of this year's Welcome uh, Book Award um, is artist and uh, writer uh, Marion Coots for her book The Iceberg. Um, it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Marion to the stage. Marin, I just wondered if we could start by, um, so the book, I'm not going to say what the book was about, but it certainly begins with the diagnosis of um, Tom Lubbock's brain tumour. Yep. And that diagnosis arrives um, in the middle of a normal day. Yep. And the phrase that um, really stuck in my mind is that you, you heard this news and then what you recount is... Um, we learn something, we are mortal, you might say you know this, but you don't. Just tell me about that um, moment of hearing the news. Um, well, it, it, was, it was on the day that um, our boy, because we, we have a, a boy who was 18 months old at that time, and it was, um, you know, I just had the pregnancy and the birth and was in that space of this is the going forward, this is what we're doing. And it was the day that we, um, uh, it was his first day at the Childminder. So um, obviously one is very full of that, you know, kind of first separation, all the, is everything okay, anxiety thing. Um, and we knew, I mean, Tom had had a fit, that was the, si the signal that something was wrong, but beyond that there was nothing. And we didn't even think, hmm. we didn't know how wrong that was, we didn't know anything about it really. And then um, Tom came along to the Childminders and... I don't know, so we had this conversation, and then that was the shift after that point. Everything became different. And in a way, the book very precisely has a time frame. It starts from that moment of diagnosis, mm. and it ends at the moment of his death, mm. and it doesn't go anywhere else. I mean, it does other things sort of vertically and horizontally in a different way, but it does, it's very, that, that sort of, I don't know, the way time felt, what happened to the nature of, how I understood time from that point on seemed to be really qualitatively different. Um, and that the news is delivered in time. In yeah. an, and you talk about, you know, and, and in fact Tom talks in his book about how um, things unravel through MRI scans at three-month alicots. Yeah. Um, but in fact this news is given, the world changes in an instant. Yeah, it was very, it was very palpable and it was like, um, it was almost like, Obviously, with, with news like that, you don't really know what the ramifications are. I mean, we knew it was incredibly, seriously, terribly bad. But you, you're kind of... I think there's a huge sort of... In a way, it felt like everything... From that point, everything was going slightly retrospectively. It was like I couldn't quite work out... And I, and I, I talk about this. I couldn't quite work out as soon as hearing the news, which is, of course, delivered in language... Um, it seemed like I'd known it all the time. Do you know what I mean? You're sort of immediately catching up. You're doing this thing. Um, and it's obviously shock. You're kind of dealing with the kind of shock. Um, and then you... But it did feel like both, both the, the sense of time was different and also every single thing that you saw, the entire visual world was different. And that felt like very striking. It felt like, oh, yes, so what we experienced before and the way we experienced things before is not the case. It is different. Um, in fact, I mean, I don't know how many people in the audience have read the book, but it's, it's almost quite hard to carry on the conversation without hearing some of it, I think, because of the language 
I don't think you know, I've never read a book that's quite so sustainedly dense in its language and precise. I just wondered if you might read from that, that moment. Sure, I'm going to, yeah. The book's written in sort of numbered sections. It's got three long sections and a very tiny coda. And then all these sections are divided into shorter kind of numbered subsections. Um, so I'm going to read from right at the start. It's from section one, which is 1.1. Something has happened, a piece of news. We've had a diagnosis that has the status of an event. The news makes a rupture with what went before. Clean, complete, and total, save in one respect. It seems that after the event, the decision we make is to remain. Our unit stands. This alone will not save us, but whenever we look, it is the case. The decision is joint and tacit, and I'm surprised to realize this. Though we talked about countless things, talk is all we ever do, we did not address it directly. So not a decision then, more a mode arrived at together. The news is given verbally. We learn something. We are mortal. You might say you know this, but you don't. The news falls neatly between one moment and another. You would not think there was a gap for such a thing. You would not think there was room. The threat has two aspects, a current fact and an obscure outcome, the manifestation of the fact. The first is immediate, and the second talks of duration. The fact has coherent force. And nothing, no person or thought or thing, escapes its shift. It is as if a new physical law has been described for us bespoke, absolute as all the others are, yet terrifyingly casual. It is a law of perception. It says you will lose everything that catches your eye. Under this illumination, there is no downtime and no off-gaze. For its duration, looking can never be idle. Seeing is active. It is an action like aiming or hitting. And that comment then that there is no downtime or off gaze is in fact sustained through the next 300 pages in its scrutiny from you. Yeah, um, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the book, I didn't start out to write a book. Mm. I'm not, before I wrote this book, I wasn't a writer. I'm a visual artist. I make films. I make sculptural objects. And so in a way, the kind of, um, the it arose out of bunches of, small bunches of text, like bunches of material stuff, you know, and there wasn't really a sense of, of shaping it into a kind of project. But I suppose, until much later, and then I suppose when, when I did realize it was a project, I kind of, it seemed like there was a real, um, a real imperative, if I was going to use language to talk about this experience, and it was very much, it is very much a work of language, in a way that's, I don't know, it sounds silly to say, but that, that was my prime, concern really what is the what are the physical words what what do they sound like how do they fit all that kind of stuff and um and so if i was going to do anything which used language it, it was about that kind of uh, that real attentiveness to things as they were and as they are and as they were unspooling so that kind of sense of of looking and being very very attentive to all that happened and that included right to the very end. So no kind of glossing, no kind of fudging. Um, it had to have the same sort of... We were under the same stress the whole time. Mm. And in a way, the language it was sort of... I was trying to sort of replicate that sense of sameness somehow, even though things were changing furiously and hugely, you know. Um, but the precision of the language... So as someone who has a kind of, you know, a sort of bad go at this, you can do it for a bit... 
But to do, and you know, it would almost seem ridiculous to suggest that an, any writer wouldn't want to get the right word in the right place all the time. Yeah. But here, it is absolute. You know, it seemed, it's really stark. Well, it seemed, it seemed, that seemed to be, again, it seemed like a kind of, almost like a moral obligation. Hmm. You know, I, I, it's like, um, it, somehow to do honour to the thing. Hmm. You know, you had to, you couldn't let up, really. And in a sense, when you're caught up in that sort of situation, things don't really let up. I mean, you might have, though you might have moments of relative calm in a field of catastrophe. Um, it is still catastrophe, do you know what I mean? You're, you're always kind of aware of the sort of... You're always aware of the, the new reality somehow. So, yeah. I mean, and, and Tom, I mean, Tom was a writer. He was, the, he was mm. the art critic of The Independent for many years, and he was someone who took language uh, more seriously than anyone I've ever really mm. met. And he was very... Um, I don't know, somehow that was... I can't say that's infectious, but it is sort of, you know, mm. I couldn't... There was no point in it otherwise. Yes. Well, the morality of it's infectious, yeah, isn't it? The, the duty yeah, absolutely. to truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the interesting thing, of course, if interesting is the right word, is that there's this precision and rigour of language for a long period of time in dense, dense alicots. I, I found it funny that you said to me your friends read this in one sitting because it took me months of reading it and having to stop mm. and then come back to it. But then there's, you're documenting loss of language mm. and... Um, I suppose, dissolution of self of a person. No, not really. That was the thing. Loss of language, yes. Dissolution self. of self, absolutely okay. not. We were, always very, we were always very conscious of, of that somehow in the middle of all this, we, we, there was this weird luck. And I think the book wouldn't have... I wouldn't have written the book if, if Tom's identity and the sense, of, sense of himself had, mm. had been, like, mashed. You know, it was, never, it was never like that. He was always there... Um, things became very much more extreme in his personhood, and you know, things disappeared. Like you know, he couldn't. In the end, he wasn't mobile. In the end, his language was really, really, very, very <laughs> idiosyncratic. Though I, I could understand it. So um, that was rather a marvelous thing. That the self-sustained. Yes. Yes. And I know that he found that very marvelous and very interesting. He uses that word a lot. That it was that he was persisting. That yeah. he was. Continues. He was interested in his own persistence, if you see what I mean. But in a kind of like, ah, this is what's happening. This is what. And he was very. I mean, yeah, he was very yeah, sort sure. of. Um, sure. He was very. Um, he was always up for a challenge, in a yeah. funny way. And it was, yeah. He was. He was a great sort of improviser. And there was a lot of all that. All his improvisatory force was needed. I mean, mm. all, all of all of our improvisatory, you know, because mm. there's a great deal of improvisation involved in trying to be a family in that circumstance, you know. So that sense of, like, you, you couldn't rely on anything and therefore you just had to, you kind of had to act all the time somehow. I mean, it was, it was of course, incredibly tiring, but uh, there was no other way, really. So his loss of language wasn't experienced at any level as a loss of self. The self was sustained. Not, it wasn't for him, and it didn't seem didn't like for, you. for people around him. And no. then the counter of that, of yeah. your lad's language ascending yeah. in the presence of this. So that, that's yeah. all, of these, all of these strands and axes of language are yeah. happening. Well, our boy who's... I mean, in the book, Eugene's called Ev. Uh, his, no, sorry, my boy's called Eugene. In the book, he's called Ev, because I wanted to give him something slightly to sort of hide behind. But um, his... Um, Yes, he was acquiring language in, a, in that absolutely fantastical way that children do. And, of course, you can't help but enjoy that. You know, you can't help but... That's still really exciting, even though this is still happening. You know, that, I, I think, in a way, the other sort of problem was that sense of... Um, 
when I say problem, like I'm trying to work out how it, what I can think about this, that sense that, you know, um, the sort of quotidian, the life, the normality, the nursery, the blah, blah, the whatever, the friends or whatever, you know, that was all still going on at the same time. And it just seemed like there was no, no slip of anything that could go between them. And you had to just kind of be with the one and be with the other at the same time, um, which is, of course, kind of impossible in a sort of funny way, but actually that was the only way to sort of... Yeah. To do it. And Dennis uh, Potter talks about, doesn't he? Things are both more trivial and more important. Yeah. And they're happening together, aren't they're they? They're happening together. All the time. Yeah. But the, I got the sense, I mean, that people approach those, doctors do it all the time, I do it as a human being. Someone is having a time that is objectively, no matter what, how they may contend with it yeah. personally, difficult. Mm-hmm. I will arrive with all sorts of suppositions about that and caricatures. I've done it already by saying um, loss of language is a dissolution of self. So I, there'll be a set of expectations and suppositions, and one of the ones that you noted was, in fact, that you were, for want of a better word, the three of you, enjoying this time together. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sort of way, uh, there was a kind of... And I, I talk about... I, I wrote the introduction to Tom's book, and I talk, tried to sort of figure it out in that, that the sense that, you know, you always think when you get a diagnosis like this that the idea of death is completely separate. It's like you go into a separate space, and it's like, you know, you're out there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the reason why you're out there is because everyone kind of shoves you out there kind of thing. But actually, you're not out there, and it's a complete continuum. And so our attitude, in a, in a way, was... Uh, though now I can talk about it quite glibly, saying our attitude. It wasn't like we... Th- it wasn't like we thought about it or articulated it in a sense. But, um, you know, we were enjoying our lives pretty majorly before Tom's diagnosis. And we were going to enjoy our lives pretty majorly after as much as we possibly could. And if, if, if I had any role in this, that was my role, really, to try and... And there were many, many things that could be done and were done. Um, but it was quite a difficult thing to explain to people, you know, and that people would go oh, you know, it's such a disaster, whatever, you know, and, uh, how are you coping, how are you managing? And I'd, say, and I'd say to them, this is the good bit. This is the good bit. He's still here. Mm. And it was very hard, I felt, to be believed in that. And your response to that, one of affront or just amusement that they didn't get it? You just had to move on. It was too tiring. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You had to sort of do the next yeah. thing. And what about then time? I mean, you talk about time in here, and early on, I, and the bit that stuck for me, was your comment on these Edward's, Edward Fox photographs, the yeah. chestnut photographs that show um, a chestnut, the same chestnut, the same point in different seasons, and you wondered about uh, the transition isn't charted yeah. from the one extreme to the yeah, other. Yeah, it's basically, these are two, two I've saw, it was, there's a lot of art in the book, mm. and there's a lot of thinking through art objects, because um, that's, you know, that's what they're there for. Mm. And, um, yeah, there are these two, uh, two pictures of the same tree, and one is a, a summer image, and one mm. is a winter image. And it just seemed very clear that what, we, what wasn't visible, and how could you, how to note that, how could you ever grasp that, what is the point of turn, what is the point at which something starts to go? Because, of course, the whole situation was many, many goings mm. all the time, you know. Mm. And, so, and that was a kind of, in a way, an impossible sort of thing to think about, but... Um, and it somehow, it just seemed to compress lots of other things into it, you know. And is the book doing that? Is it rendering that steady change from one point to another? Um, if not consciously? It wasn't, in a way, I, I didn't, I don't know, it's a hard question. I didn't set out to write a memoir. I didn't mm. set out to, to record. 
In a funny way, I didn't set out to record our story mm. as so much as to set out to use language to think about the situation mm. that we were in. Rationally. Yes, in mm. the way that I do it. Mm. But like in a, in a sense, um, also, I don't know, this, this business about you know, parenting, I mean, parenting is such a huge thing in it, you know, mm. and how you... There were, all, there were all sorts of complexities. You know, what do you tell a child? Where, do you, where is the child in this? Where is the, in all the medicalization? What, how do you, um, how does the unit continue? And we had, you know, that, that was kind of our aim in a way. Mm. So it kind of, I, I wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't so much. And I think there's, there's, there's a sort of, the way that the book is, is structured, which is in these chunks, they are like physical chunks. Here is this, here is this, here is this. And I remember when I was talking to my agent about it, before she'd even read much of it, and I was saying, um, oh yeah, you know, it's like a set of objects. This one's kind of got this kind of pattern, and this one's this, and this one's... And, and, and then she said, that's not really how people describe books. But it was actually very much how... It's like I'm giving you this... This is this experience, and the experience might, would be a chunk of text which might represent some kind of quite wide-roaming sort of set of ideas, or it might be something which is actually a description, a very, there's a lot of very close descriptions, you know, this is the experience, and it, it took about three minutes to happen, you know, mm. it's sort of, so it goes from kind of wider to, to tiny. And did it um, need persuading, then, that you wanted to pursue this form in order to encompass the content you had? Did it need did any persuading? Yeah, it sounded as if she was surprised at that sort of version of a book. No, no, I, no, 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 no. Did no. she need persuading? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, not yeah. at all. No, fine. Sorry. No, 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 it was fine. It was <laughs> she just was like, I don't know. Yeah. And the language you've talked about there, the other strand of the language, of course, is your encounters with healthcare professionals. Mm. And the, you know, they, here you are being absolutely precise and kind of chiselling words and plucking them and replacing them and um, getting them right. <laughs> And there's a couple of encounters in the books, particularly when bad news is being delivered. I might come on to the space in which that news mm. is given, but the actual content of the words used don't necessarily meet the same precision when one would hope they would. It, I mean, in a way, it's really hard, because, like... Um, there's, you know, there's, a, there's an encounter, say, with, with our surgeon, who mm. was... Very fantastic. You know, why does, in a way, he was very fantastic at the job of being a surgeon. Mm. He was clearly <clears throat> less sure of himself at the job of talking to us. Mm. You know, and that, that was, in a way, something you can understand, mm. sort of a clear thing. Mm. Um, I suppose one of the things to say is also that, you know, Tom's ill from, for quite a long time. Tom wasn't really, I mean, he was having fits and stuff like that there was a, as a result of the craniotomy, but he mm. wasn't sort of, his illness kind of, manifested sort of later in a yes, way. Yes. So for us, the, the only problem was, was verbal. It was like, you know, you have a glioblastoma multiform. You mm. are going to have the effects of this, you know. Mm. So it was like a kind of theoretical mm. issue. Mm. So actually, the, the content of the, those conversations and the, the, the use of words is incredibly charged mm. you know, and incredibly, you know, <clears throat> it's like, it's very physical. You're in a room, the room's got no air, it's a small room, mm. the door's shut, it's all kind mm. of crappy. And you're having these words which you're then trying to sort of somehow suck all the meaning out mm. of in a completely 
hopeless way, you know. Um, and they have forced the words, they don't have they? Because great force, yeah. you've talked about using them yourself and they being enchanted force. by the kind yeah. of um, yeah, yeah. artifacts of them. You can, tamadal, on, yeah. da 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 da, glider yeah, yeah. wafers. Yeah. And they kind of bestow a certain authority and power, don't they? Mm. Even in delivering them to other people, this yeah. is what we're going to be doing next. Yeah. Gives a nice structure of certainty. I mean, some people were very good at it, and some people, and also, you know, the whole body language thing, and some people were, we came out of some encounters, even though the news had been disastrous, with, I don't know, it's like, uh, you're not cheered by it, but you feel like something has happened which is understandable, rather than you feel it's like, you either feel that language is part of this, is a continuation of the assault that's already going on. Um, so there's a, you know, that's kind of somehow slightly assuaging there. And have you got a sense, is it possible to verbalise what it was that made those encounters somehow holding and affirming, despite the, ter- the awfulness of the news? I think it was, I suppose, um, there's a sense of, you know, when you're, when you're in a position of being a patient like that, um, there's a sense of you're already hugely vulnerable so there's a kind of, the <coughs> things which didn't work were the ones where the health professional didn't really, um, you know, the sort of the individuality of the person, the individuality of the vulnerability of the person. And it was like, you know, we were still we. And, um, and obviously you do, you know, as you build up, a, and it's not really a rapport, but, you know, you build and you see people more than once, then there's perhaps a chance for, for them to kind of, to kind of get slightly the measure of you, get slightly the heft of you. I mean, the, the things... Um, there's, there was a situation in the book where, where all the social care came mm. into the home, mm. and that was, like, really deadly. Yes. It was really... There was no time, there was no investment, there was no... There was no... Nothing to... Um, there was no weight attached to understanding who the person was who, who mm. was being attended to, mm. and that felt very, very... The descriptions are violating. That felt very violent, yeah. And ludicrous. I mean, it's just kind of a fictional landscape, really, mm. of care. And functional, rather. Yes. Not, not even functional. Yeah, no, the not, tick of not it. functional at all. <clears throat> yeah, just Actually, the tick of the box. Actually, hugely detrimental. Yeah, Talk about that a bit, the space becoming, um, the space becoming intruded, because they, as well as the, the, the issue of the fluidity and the acceleration and deceleration of time and these moments, then there's the space that comes across. One, the space in which these encounters mm. with health professionals happen and your description was brilliant because that's where I tell bad news every day and I've looked at it I've looked at it since and thought yep what is this space <laughs> it's a cupboard yeah or, yep. or smaller um, yeah. and then also the, the space of your house yeah becoming porous which was a brilliant description uh, and that moment when one of the carers I think left the door open mm. Casual, easy, mm-hmm. uh, oughtn't to be, but easily done. And you came down the stairs, and the house was now open mm. to the elements in so many ways. They'd just been in and out, and all the rest of it. Just it, could you talk a bit about that? About how the space? Well, let's think a bit about the, the spaces where news was given in hospitals. Yeah, it it seemed very. You know, if you have if you are having a physical examination, I mean, somebody will draw a curtain, and they'll give you. Mm. There'll be a concentration on you. There'll be a privacy. There'll be here we are. Mm. This is happening. But again, because. I mean, apart from having had brain surgery, you know, there wasn't... It was like the, the big thing that happened next to that, after that happened, was that we were told the news of the biopsy, which is, of course, absolutely devastating. And we, we became... Both of us became aware that, you know, the, these spaces where news is delivered were, were just, like, kind of nowhere spaces. They were just, like, 
shuffled together. Someone managed to get a chair from somewhere else and two guys couldn't sit down and, and it had no windows. And you sort of thought, God, I'm, I'm destroyed before I start, you know. And, and so that, that was kind of... And they were very kind of liminal spaces, like people were banging in and out. Um, <laughs> so it was almost like the attentiveness to the delivering of news, which is, of course, the news in our case was... The, the whole of the, the thing. The news is the event, The yeah. news is the event. There mm. was no other event. And, you know, completely devastating for us in all sorts of ways that you can only, you know, that the delivery of news is only the start of the understanding of the devastation. You know, it's like the first, psh, like that. Um, and so it just seemed slightly, I don't know, we were just aware of the very shambolic nature of some of the spaces in which this was to be delivered. It was almost like that, that kind of what is the, clearly the weight given to this delivery mm. is, is mm. not the same as the weight given to if you were having your, I don't know, teeth cleaned or something. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, sort of like, yeah, it's almost like a kind of slightly weird disparity. But you know? it strikes me, because you're talking about precision of language as a moral duty to the thing. So you're, mm. you're attaching a, a, an appropriate morality then to your language. And without overstating some of the encounters you've had, I'm sure some of them were fine. Yeah. Some of, of them, them then were in funny yeah. spaces, language yeah. that was shoddy. Yeah. And we think of moral problems in medicine as big ones, you know, Siamese yeah. twins, you know, withholding treatments, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, there's a, there's a subtler, low-grade morality that it's is infusing medicine. It's very pervasive, though. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of... Because there was a big, huge issue and problem for us was uh, at the end of Tom's life, where do we go? We were trying to get out of hospital. Mm. And there was this kind of madness about going to... Um, uh, what they called a nursing home, mm, mm. you know, where it just would have been like, there wasn't any medical care there. Um, so th we had this completely insane sort of look, uh, drive around London, looking at uh, nursing homes. And, um, and some of the spaces that we saw there, you just felt, it just seemed incredibly damaging. I don't know, it just seemed like, um, as spaces to live in, let alone spaces to die in, really. I mean, this is a difficult question. I it may not be. I just wonder, though. I, I know that towards the end of his life, the option of a Vastin was explored with Tom. And Very was, briefly. There was a debate about, yeah. you know, the value of it or otherwise. Mm. And you, I think you might even comment in the book about the cost of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was there at the time a sense, or in retrospect, was there a sense, and this debate happens all the time, about the, you know, the relatively low cost of trying to achieve the right spaces, et cetera, compared to the mm. huge cost of... Does that, did that um, calculus ever enter your mind at the time and think, hold on a minute, what's all this about, or since, in terms of that balance? Um, I'm not sure. I kind of... I suppose I was very, I was very kind of laser-like <laughs> when, when this experience was going on. You know, I was tr my, my aim was to try and find a place where we as a three, a family of three could live together. So that when Tom died, he was with us. Because at a certain point, he couldn't stay at home. And so that was clearly, a, you know, there was all these kind of constant like things where the legs fell out from under it and they were falling out from under and, um, And we found our, again, by kind of luck, really, um, we found Trinity Hospice, which was an incredible space. And the book is has been written because I had that space, because yes. we had that space. Yes. So we had, the, and there was, you know, we still had a lot <coughs> to do. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, it was Tom's death and life were fantastically social. Mm. So yes. there was all that, kind of, and that social was a real motor for him when mm. he was dying. About, you know, 
he was still interested in all that. So that was a space where we can continue the things that we wanted to continue. And so I was very, very conscious, um, and there's a lot of description in the book about that space mm, and about mm. those spaces mm. and what they felt like and what they did to you, what they did to you when you entered and how they, they kind of all, you sort of had, um, I don't know, there was kind of, um, when we first saw it, I didn't even need to, I didn't even look further. I kind of went into the foyer and thought, okay, the way these people are moving yes. in this building suggests we'll be okay here. Yes. It really was that. I didn't even look. There wasn't time. It was too, it was too much yeah. in a hurry. Um, the tone we did, of it. We yeah. didn't even look into the actual ward. Mm. Um, but again, I was very aware of it. It was all, it was all kind of it was huge. You know, it could have gone. It could have gone so different. It could have. Mm. Um, and they're scarce places. These, these spaces are ridiculously scarce. Absolutely ridiculously. Scarce totally. yep. In a way that isn't. Um, yeah. The iceberg as a name. Yeah. For the book, and you talk you talk about it once. You talk about approaching the iceberg and, yeah. and the emotion, because even though the book is had a, an effect on me that was profoundly emotional, emotional, much of the writing is very very precise and rational and objective. Mm. And then there's this one moment. There's a couple of moments of really high emotion in terms of the events, and then there was this one moment where we talked about your emotions being the sonar for the for the iceberg. Yeah, it was at a certain point I found a counsellor who was of use <laughs> after some uh, counsellors who were not. Um, let's move them to one side. Um, and I, I kind of, yeah, and, and as much as giving, what, the, what those sessions did and as much as giving me um, a space to kind of articulate things or to think. I mean, you just like the pressure on thinking. You had no time to think. So actually, any thinking time was really valuable. So, um, it, you know, so it gave me that, but also it gave me a kind of opposite terror in the sense that it finally showed me, uh, it gave me an idea of scale. Mm. It gave me an idea of, oh, yeah, so what you thought was the, the, the mm. hugeness of the thing is actually, it is even more, you know. Mm. It, it just gave me an idea of scale. And there's a kind of, um, there's a line from Elizabeth Bishop, which I'm probably going to misquote, but it says, um, which I came across at the time, which says, a word is a thing in the head, like icebergs or rocks or awkwardly shaped pieces of furniture. So the idea of the kind of, and again, that's, that struck me very much because I was very much in the middle of the, these things, you know, this is the experience of taking your child to nursery on a day when you've also, you know, this is the experience of... This is, I don't know, this is the experience of when Tom couldn't remember my name. Mm. This is the experience. You know, these are kind of actual... Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to write something which was felt very, very close up in real time, in the present tense, mm. to the texture of what was happening. Mm. And that's why, it's, that's why it was seemed very... It was, the obligation was on me to get those things very right. And they do, uh, in a way that's extraordinary. Might we have another reading? Got time? Yeah. Okay. Always. Always. Okay. I will read from... What shall I read? I could read you a section which is 2.1. And in a way, it's connected to the idea of the thing in its opposite being jammed together entirely at the same time, even though you think that's not really very possible. Uh, so this is 2.1. Spring... There is going to be destruction, the obliteration of a person, his intellect, his experience, and his agency. I am to watch it. This is my part. 
There is no deserving or undeserving. There is no better and no worse. Cold has pained the ground for months. Now the garden is bursting and splitting. From the window each morning, I mark the naked clay seeding to green. I'm against lyricism, against the spring, against all growth, against all fantasies, against all nature. Blast growth and all things that grow. It is irrelevant, stupid, a waste. As nature is indifferent to me, so am I to it. As the air outside thickens and the warmth encourages the earth to release its smell, something is starting to go wrong. It is now March. I say it is March the 11th. In one week, Tom will have another scan. This is the one to fear. Today, as he stands mid-morning by the kettle, chatting and making tea, his language trips into rhythmically correct nonsense. It is ludic, quickly recoverable, but it does not sit either with fits or with his usual verbal slippages, and we note the difference in its texture immediately. It is as if language problems are self-seeding and taking root elsewhere. The primary confusions up till now have been in epileptic shocks of greater or lesser intensity. Some lie under the radar, barely registering. Others are brash. He's silenced and cannot frame a sentence with meaning. When this happens, the thought that no sense will ever be made again is visual, like a solid mass, as real as an object is real, a tin or a plate or a pen. For him, it is different. Fear is not the issue. Even in the thick of it, he's always trying to work out what is going on to test himself. He's his own best monitor. There have not been so many fits, but outside them, complexity is multiplying, and thousands of lesser confusions also occur. Words slip out, switches are stumbled over, and substitutions made. Like exotic fauna, the varieties of language proliferate. The scan results are as expected. After nine months of post-chemostasis, it is springtime. The tumor is growing again. Spring. Magnolia sulangiana opens its bells, and we are well. Normality is gifted in the form of steroids, two milligrams daily, and immediately he tightens his grip on language and on the connection of meaning to word. He feels much stronger, stimulated. He can do simple tasks without exhaustion, pick up Ev and carry him. How we adore this high, false peak. It lasts quite a short time, but time is a material stream, and we never know how long it will last, so we are taken in by it, of course we are. We are as ever in the moment, and we are well so we are forever well. We are not sanguine, but we have been here before. We are doing our work, and we know what the work is. We know we are good at it. We splash about like birds in a bird bath. I think a round of applause, actually. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So if we, might we have the house lights up, please? Thank you. <clears throat> I can see you. That's much better. They're all there, Hello. really. <laughs> have we some questions or comments? There's one down the front here. And then if we can go up to the top row. Gentleman there. Thank you. Hello. Um, I've not read your book, unfortunately. Sorry? I said I've not read your book, unfortunately. That's okay. So this is going to be a... Um, Slightly broader question. I was really interested, I'm a doctor, and I was really interested in what you said about getting, to characterise it, about getting bad news in broom cupboards and the like. I just wondered um, if you emerged from this experience with your husband as a supporter of our sort of socialised healthcare system. And the reason I ask is that it seems to me that often the reason that that sort of thing happens, it's partly a training issue and a resource issue, but it's partly because people have got 
essentially the NHS knows that people have got nowhere else to go and they don't have to offer them anything else. And whilst being a supporter of the NHS, I'd really be interested to know if, if there's another way around that or if you've got any insight. There was, um, there was one instance when we were in Queen's Square when um, we were in this room called the... It was kind of relative's room. And it felt very, very sad because it was clearly had been... Um, sort of made by it been a donation. Someone had said, I make this room, you know, this could be somewhere people can go. And, uh, and it had a plaque and a date, which was not that far in the past. And actually, when you went in there, it was full of crap. You know, people had put stacks of chairs and <coughs> there was nothing, that, that, and, and no, you know, empty notice board. And so it very quickly, it was like the, the pressure on space seemed to be so great that actually... There wasn't, there wasn't, it wasn't possible to use that as a space for people to, you know, be or relax or whatever. It seemed like everything was kind of... Um, so, literally, the things that were happening were happening in the little gaps. Do you know what I mean? They were happening in the little gaps between rooms. They were happening in the sort of... Um, <clears throat> but it, 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 did seem, it did seem rather... I don't know. It seemed, it seemed something that had... Uh, yeah, it seemed... We were very aware of it. We were very aware that that... Because that gives one a sense that one, two is in a little gap, you know, and you are, as soon as you can go, it'd be quite good. Do you know what I mean? And, and so it's kind of, those things are very psychically important. I'm afraid I don't have any solutions, but I, I just have I, a very strong memory of being in that room uh, just before Tom was about to go for his first brain surgery and just feeling like, feeling a great sorrow, really, because this was a space which clearly somebody had donated because of a previous experience. So you get that <coughs> sense of kind of handing down somebody's, loved one had died in that in that hospital or had you know survived for a bit or whatever and um and here it was a couple of years down the line and it was a kind of junk room and and it was like there was no you know it was a vacuum therefore stuff just went in it you know and that, yes, that seems I mean, quite what's seen as important as well surely and what's yeah. prized and championed i mean we'd struggle to persuade henry marsh that because of resource constraints, he needs to do his operation in the broom cupboard today. You know, it's what, what do we see as important? And things are held in an unusual hierarchy of importance. And news giving, as mm. Marion said, is the event. And, in many uh, instances, it can yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, at the top. I look forward to reading your book. <clears throat> um, and I'm interested that you, that as a visual artist, you chose at this point in life and with this event significant event going on that you chose to take to words, which was kind of his medium. So I'm interested in, in you as a visual artist taking to words. Um, I stopped doing any kind of visual work uh, literally at the point of diagnosis. I, I knew I wasn't going to have time. I, had a, I live in Brixton. I have a studio in Bethnal Green. I knew I wasn't going to have time to make that journey. And I also knew it was kind of, at that point it became completely and utterly irrelevant. It was kind of just like, um, it was partly because of the nature of who Tom was and what he did and the fact that actually he, um, words were essentially the motor of our house. You know, his, his tumour took his language, but at the same time he, um, he continued to publish till, uh, in articles in the newspaper till um, September 2010, which if you'd met him would have seemed, and heard him speak, would have seemed completely yes. impossible. I mean, his things were moving, his written language was achingly slow, 800 words would take like a night. Um, 
but he wanted to do it because he was very, he was still interested in that and what he could do and what he could do now and how he could, little ways of getting around things. So in a way, the business of words, words became so, <coughs> when, when they're being lost, like when the word for child or kettle or whatever is no longer there, you really, you know, you're very aware of, of, the, of what these words are and they became sort of, it just it didn't make any sense to do anything else really. But like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was thinking, I am writing a book. The idea of I am writing a book came much later. What I was doing was writing stuff down, and it was almost like an exercise against annihilation, really. It was kind of, as, you know, because obviously words are power. That's another thing to say, words are power. If you have words, if you can arrange them in a certain way, um, that's quite a big deal. You know? And I was, very, I was very, very aware of that. I was very aware of that, uh, and if I wasn't aware of that before, I was then aware of it, you know, at the time, if you see what I mean. Amazing so, yeah. phrase, exercise against annihilation. Yeah. You of all people should be able to turn the microphone on. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. 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 It was quite a people, people didn't believe us to a degree. Hmm. Um, you know, and again, you just have to, that's their problem. <laughs> I don't know. But um, no, I think that's, I think that's a true thing. And, and again, I sort of, as much as, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the sort of, one of the slight motors about the book was, you know, because our, our boy, like I say, he was three when Tom died, was, um, and we, we both, me and Tom, were aware that this experience, whatever it was, was, was going to be mighty. Do you know what I mean? There was a certain, like, we, we kind of knew we wouldn't survive it. But at the same time, we <coughs> were kind of, um, the sense of wonder and the sense of sort of um, pleasure and the sense of enjoyment was, was, was something I really, I because our boy was, even though he was very close with us all the time, obviously his understanding would develop later, and I kind of, I felt it was very important to somehow try and transmit to him the texture of that experience. That's in all its, in all its mixedness, you know, the fact that it was a disaster and it was also something else, and these things are actually, were actually very inseparable. Um, and that's quite a complex thing, I felt, um, but quite an important thing to try and think about. The co-presence. Yeah. And how the one doesn't... Obliterate the other. It wasn't... You know, they, I'm, doing, you I'm finishing your yeah, sentences yeah. now. Don't finish it. my sentences. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself. He is Bloody somebody doctors. else, okay? But yeah, no, so the one, the one... They don't kind of... <clears throat> you accept the two exactly as they are somehow. Um, yeah, I can't explain it better than that. Maybe you need to finish my sentences. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not me. Don't know. We will have to finish there. Marion will be at the reception tonight and has said she's happy to spend hours talking to... Did I say that? Yes. <laughs> uh, God. 
big round of applause, Lisa Murray. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.